What have we here? Welcome to the wonders of Thedas. Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren, and returning with us we have... Uh, this is Andy. Let's see, thank you for coming back, Andy, from Black Ball Press. My pleasure, great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's, it's a, let's see, we've got a, we've got a really cool episode today, I, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, uh, when I saw the topic, I immediately uh, started thinking about my last campaign because this oh, good. Is, uh, we ended on a bang, to, to say the least. Ooh, nice, nice, nice. Well, that's good. That is always a good. That is always fun. Ooh, that's weird. Um, well, uh, just speaking of that topic, uh, we had folks vote on our social media to find out what our next topic was going to be. It was actually kind of a close race uh, for a little while, but. Uh, Coming out of the winning a nose ahead was mass combat. Uh, right ahead of uh, rewards, which was, I think, the magic items, titles, wealth, etc., which I'd also like to talk about. Um, but Both I'm very excited. excited. We've yeah, gotta, yeah. we got to earn that reward first. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Uh, we got to earn that reward by taking out lots of folks, which is why we're going to be doing mass combat today. Uh, and there's a couple other things on there that I'm also excited to get to, but, you know... Let's see, you, uh, let's see, I put up the poll, you folks answered, and uh, we deliver. So, um, we'll go ahead and get right into it. Uh, well, we're going to first welcome you to This Week in Thetis. You aren't worried I'll just make it up as I go? Not at all. You'll need to hear the whole story. Welcome to This Week in Thetis. We've actually got a little bit of news for you. Uh, let's see, I've been checking out the boards recently, and apparently Faces of Thetis may be on the horizon. Yeah, uh, the... I, checked out the, I checked out the thread for that uh, mm -hmm. on the Green Ronin boards, and man, that cover looks good. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty schnazzy. Mm -hmm. uh, continues to pull from the, uh, from the, the tarot-style art uh, from Dragon Age Inquisition uh, with, what is it, yeah, Sarah's and Iron Bowls and Liliana's and Dorian's cards. Let's see, all, all the best ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um... But, uh, yeah, uh, apparently on the uh, site Previews World, which was shared on the Green Running forums by, I believe, one of the moderators, uh, there's an entry for Faces of Thetis with cover art and everything that lists it as a September 13th release uh, this year, 2017. Yeah, definitely exciting, and it seems yeah, no like they're, they're really going with uh, a number of the uh, the major-named characters. So uh, they mentioned mm -hmm. for doing the... Uh, description: Alistair, Dorian, Logan, Knight Commander Meredith, uh, Ooh, yeah. as well as uh, some of the major organizations. That, again, they mentioned the Antivid Crows and the Carta. So uh, Ooh, it seems like we're we're definitely making some deep dives into the lore. Hopefully, Ooh, uh, as it seems with updates for uh, Dragon Age Two and Inquisition. Yes, um, I remember they did a couple of Faces of Thetis uh, PDF, like a little PDF series, and. They were, uh, and they did a really big one for uh, Varric and for Talus. And uh, they actually had stat blocks for them at different periods of time. They had, like, mm -hmm. one if you uh, met Varric at the beginning of Dragon Age 2 or even before Dragon Age 2 or, like, during Act 2 and whatnot. So they had them at, I think, like, levels 1, 5, and 10 or something. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and of course they had me, to... as a GM, that's that's what's really helpful having having oh, yeah. characters that aren't necessarily static ones you can drop in no matter no matter where you are in a campaign. Oh, definitely. And they had all these great uh, recommendations for how to use those characters, and they even included a couple of extra rules for like uh, for Varric having a signature weapon, which was Bianca, and mm -hmm. actually having a weapon that levels up with you was a pretty cool idea. Definitely, and uh, obviously pretty fitting to his character there. I don't think oh, he'll definitely. ever give up his crossbow. Never. The one story he'll never tell us. Except we kind of <laughs> figure it out in Inquisition. Well, you know, slight spoilers. Slight spoilers. <laughs> I mean, you folks will just have to play to find out what all that's about. It's been out for it's been out for a couple of years now. Yeah, Inquisition's <laughs> been about for about three years now. Mm -hmm. Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age Two are going to be fair game on this podcast. Just fair warning to everyone, <laughs> everyone at home. Those games, Dragon Age Origins has been out since 2009, and, and or Dragon Age 2 was, I think, 2011? Uh, thereabouts. I want to say it was three years, and I was kind of hoping to hear mm -hmm. some news at e, uh, with E3 coming out, but it seems right. that most of Bioware's uh, resources have gone into Anthem, their new IP. Right. Which looks pretty dang cool, but, you know, we're, we'll be quietly waiting here for Dragon Age whenever it shows up. Yeah, not soon enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Never soon enough. So, uh, exciting stuff coming along. We got a new book for Dragon Age, and uh, we'll definitely be keeping our ears to the ground uh, to deliver it to everybody and let everyone know what's going on. And, of course, when a book comes out, we'll have we'll probably have a whole episode about it, to be real. <laughs> oh, no doubt. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, speaking of uh, taking a look at books, we should probably consult that codex. You can ask me questions if you like. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm... going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the Codex, everybody. We've got a couple of questions, and uh, some questions from folks who are awfully close to home right now. <laughs> curiouser and curiouser. <laughs> um, so, uh, first question uh, is from Parsifal. Thank you, again, Parsifal. On the Green Ronin forums. Uh, this is a good one. You talk of the Mortalitasi prompted my next question for your podcast. Do you think the Circle Mage background could be tweaked to give a better cultural flavor for mages of different nations? There's already different backgrounds for Elven and cir Human Circle Mages, but why not Orlesians and Navarans? I think adding some of the random background table could work, like focuses of performance, like you mentioned, or etiquette and deception, given the political power of the Mortalitasi. What do you think? Perhaps you can even come up with suggestions during future episodes. And this is definitely a fair point, uh, definitely a fair thing to bring up. Yeah. Um, uh, most I, circles, yeah. I, I really think that uh, in terms of in terms of a, de uh, a design perspective, it probably mm -hmm. came down to uh, just a matter of fitting all that information into into one uh, into one race section would would take up so much space that they just for sheer page count had to had to trim it down a little bit uh leaving us only yeah. with the the elephant human but yeah it totally makes sense to, that an orlesian circle mage is going to have a different experience than a than a kirkwall circle mage versus yeah, a Ferelden or what uh -huh. have you or like all the way in the anderfells where apparently they let you go for exercises outside <laughs> which would be brilliant too nice fresh yeah. air wouldn't that be great? Apparently, they like have like Templar, uh, Templar uh, sanctioned like, exercises. They just climb <laughs> to the top of the tower and they do calisthenics in the morning. Hey. Can't and of course, they hear about stick. right, <laughs> and they keep hearing about all the stuff going down in Kirkwall. It's like, well, yeah, they just lock them up in a cell every night. 
<laughs> what do you think they're going to do? Exactly. But, um, and while most circles are, you know, fairly isolated from the respective nations and can feel very similar mechanically, they have, you know, uh, most circles kind of have a shared culture, uh, people who are brought to the circle are brought there by puberty. They've had a whole life that they've had to leave before they actually went to the circle. So, it is, I think it's perfectly reasonable that they would have uh, trade skills or things that they've been trained, uh, things that they've been practicing for uh, before they ever came to the circle and before they ever even knew that they were magical. Yeah, if a, if a, you know, a young courtier was brought to the circle for Morlay, I mean, they're definitely going to have some persuasion, some etiquette, some deception mm -hmm. uh, to them before well, they arrive. Definitely. Um, the background itself is uh, fairly accommodating for like the education that you would receive in a uh, circle, um, but we have a, there's a few we have a few suggestions by which I mean I wrote a list that is probably a little too long um, for uh, mostly this is mostly for human circle mages uh, elven circle mages can only come from so I mean they can probably they can come from most of the places that humans can um, if they're city mages if they're city elves. Um, if you're the occasional Dalish elf that uh, was sent off to the circle, which is not uncommon, very uncommon, mm -hmm. but not completely unheard of. What do you do with your extra mages? <laughs> Wait yep, for the Templars got, you, to come around. <laughs> yep. Ooh, that's sad. A little bit. So, right. <laughs> so these adjustments can mostly be more for humans. Um, but uh, we have a list on here of... Uh, things you might be able to swap out some focuses on the uh, mage table for. Like, if you're from Orlais, we have communication deception, communication persuasion, dexterity crafting, perception, empathy, willpower, faith. You can probably add communication etiquette to that one. I uh, didn't actually think about that one while I was going through. And I, and I, I've got, I, I should have. Um, but for Ferelden's, we have communication animal handling, animal handling uh, constitution drinking, strength intimidation, strength might, willpower, courage... Uh, and Tiva would probably have a lot more uh, mercantile uh, experiences, so like communication bargaining, cunning evaluation, cunning brewing. They make a lot of wine. This uh, is true. Dex <laughs> dexterity crafting, because they, they, they're they a trade nation. Some folks are going to have straight-up trade skills. Uh, and, of course, dexterity stealth. Maybe you were bought by the Antivan crows and suddenly started shooting fireballs at your at your fellow apprentices. I've always liked that... that that sort of crossover uh, type character there where oh, yeah, you, you might have been, uh, you know, a street rat in Antiva, but you're, uh, oh, that magical talent just kind of surfaced. So you bring a little bit of roguish edge to the mage or, you mm -hmm. know, a little bit of roguish oh, yeah. edge to the warrior or vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Ravani folks are kind of, uh, like the Navaran folks are um, kind of entertainers. Uh, Ravanis can have communication performance, uh, cunning Kun, because they live so, because they have some cities that are still held by the Kunari. Mm -hmm. uh, cunning cultural lore, cunning musical lore, or cunning navigation, because a lot of them are pirates. And then uh, for the Navarans, there's performers, but there's also but the, it also has a strong military history. So it has communication leadership, communication performance, cunning military lore, strength smithing, and willpower courage. Uh, the Anderfels, uh, the Anderfels are survivors, uh, so they have constitution running, dexterity initiative, perception hearing, willpower courage, willpower faith. Uh, climbing uh, might be a good add to that yeah, one as well. Point. Definitely. Probably some other, uh, probably some other strength-based ones. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, free marchers are kind of run the gamut, but, uh, we, uh, I'd say I, I wrote down communication bargaining, communication gambling, dexterity ledger domain, strength intimidation, strength might, because they're 
kind of braggarts. They want to they want to make sure that their city state is the best one. Make sure everyone knows it. Um, but alternatively, if you don't want to write down the whole list, and I completely understand, um, you could uh, roll once uh, for a background benefit on the circle mage background, uh, and once on the background that would most suit your character had they not become a circle mage. And that makes a lot of sense because that that gets it from both worlds. Definitely. Or of course, I guess if you're doing the uh, buying abilities, you could always buy from both buy from both tables. Mm-hmm. Or the GM might maybe enforce you can only buy so much from one table or another. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm getting too I'm getting too into this. <laughs> uh, thank you for the question, Parsifal. It's a it's a good one, and it's definitely something worth thinking about for a lot of GMs out there Indeed. and folks who want to focus on the flavor of their character, where they came from before they were a circle mage. Yeah, especially if you're running a, a very international heavy uh, campaign mm-hmm. where you have a lot of travel between the nations, as opposed Definitely. to something like Dragon Age Origins, obviously all in for Elden. So. Right, right. Um, can also be really good if, like, uh, if you're in a really big circle that pulls from a lot of places, mm. and it's a whole circle campaign. So these are ways to differentiate from each other. Mm-hmm. That, that would be something else. I'll, I'll, I'll write, I'll write that. <laughs> on the grand or the white spire someday <laughs> that sounds that sounds like fun that sounds like a high pretty high level campaign <laughs> it'd have to be but oh that'd be one for the ages oh definitely so um goodness i had where'd it go uh we have another question here but uh, i can i, I had can a see name it here let's see uh, yeah i have another question i'm wondering who it was from I'm not Pretty sure, sure this isn't a Parsifal question. This is not a Parsifal question. Uh, I actually, I can probably check real quick. I got it through <laughs> our email. Um, I thought I wrote the name down, but apparently <laughs> I neglected to write that. Well, why Let's don't you see. look and I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, this question is, uh, do mages carry around some sort of papers or certification that show that they are circle mages and not apostates? If a Templar or Chantry person sees someone casting a spell or even holding a staff, they're not dumb. Is there any way for the mage to prove they are not apostates and therefore would not have to hold up the game for the Templar to investigate? If such papers do exist, can they be forged and sold on the black market? If so, about how much should they cost? On the same note, even circle mages are not typically allowed to roam free. Are there documents they are given by their knight commander or first enchanter? Uh, if so, should there be a duration, and should these be allowed to be faked and sold on the black market? What are your thoughts? Many. We have many thoughts about this, and this one's good. Definitely. Um, in the circle mage opening of scenes of Dragon Age Origins, uh, when your warden passes the harrowing, they are given a set of robes, a staff, and a ring. Uh, these could very easily be uh, I guess kind of like badges of office for being circle mages and they could just have the emblem of the cha- of the emblem of the circle on them which may be enough maybe they probably don't give those to apprentices uh, and so that would be a, a probably a good marking to know that you're supposed to be outside the circle yeah, and immediately, as soon as you get some type of material recognition, whether that's papers or whether that's a ring or robes and mm-hmm. staff, what have you, uh, undoubtedly there's someone that's going to be say, "I can, I can make these, I can make these uh, illicitly and make a fortune." Oh, doing definitely. It. So, so the uh, uh, it's in Ferelden. There's that whole mages collective. I would not be surprised if they uh, grab a couple fakes just to keep some mages safe. That would make sense. 
Yeah, no kidding. Oh, and this, uh, let's see, by the way, this question comes from uh, Julian Karate Karanza. <laughs> I believe, I think I said that right. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Julian, thank you so much for your question. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can probably assume that the robes that are given uh, are not necessarily magical in nature, but could count as a badge of office for a circle mage. Uh, in the video game, they give you a plus one to magic, which, of course, in the tabletop game would be pretty ludicrous. <laughs> Uh, especially for like a level one mage to Definitely. have. Definitely, that's, uh, that's a lot of, a lot of spell power yeah. right there. Yeah, the, the mage, the templars don't want to be handed out magic, magic things. Uh, but um, yeah, that uh, making them magic does mean that you could add stats for them to add magical benefits, and uh, you may have to, especially if you're doing it at the beginning of the campaign, you'll probably want to make sure that the other players have some toys to play mm -hmm. with too. Um, but. Uh, someone counterfeiting mage robes or uh, writs from knight commanders or from first enchanters would be an excellent adventure. Oh, definitely. Uh, and plus, it's a great way to introduce uh, contacts in, say, the Carta or you know any other number of criminal organizations that oh, definitely. Uh, would make their money uh, on counterfeit items. Definitely. Oh yeah, and that uh, you could have entire you could have an entire campaign around based around this kind of like a smuggling operation or a smuggling mm -hmm. ring or uh, either running it or trying to break it or if you're an apostate potentially benefiting from it <laughs> or all of the above depending on how your party's composed. Mm hmm. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out that uh, apostates who want those fake robes likely don't have much money to give people, so the black market may trade for magical favors instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, with someone who has access to you know the circle's repository, if you know a magic item just happened to go missing, you know, none the wiser. None the wiser. Who's gonna notice? <laughs> and you know, you got that schnazzy robe, so don't worry your head. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, excellent question, Julian. Thank you so much. Uh, a very good question. We hope that you have some fun with this, because it sounds like you're starting a new campaign and probably have some uh, mages in that campaign. <laughs> so, uh, this next question comes from this cool guy I know. Uh, I think his, his name is Andy Klosky or something. <laughs> I, I did send you kind of a legion of questions uh, <laughs> you when, did, you, when you yeah. said you were in a draught, so... Uh... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we appreciate that still. It's going to keep us going for a little while. I don't think I'm quite so. to Parsifal's level yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> right, we'll get there, yeah, yeah. Um, but your question, Andy, and you'll, you'll be getting your answer to your question awfully quick compared <laughs> to a lot of folks. Um, how would you go about representing a lasting injury, such as, say, a missing arm within the age rule set? Is the loss of hand or uh, loss or use of a hand or leg simply penalty simply penalty enough, or should there be a mechanical loss as well? And some of those, I think, can definitely be pretty obvious. Uh, like missing limbs, uh, missing a hand probably means you can't wield two-handed weapons or weapons that require two hands like a bow mm -hmm. or a crossbow. Um, and if you're missing a leg, you probably have a, bone, a uh, penalty to speed or your, or your defense or both or um, maybe even straight-up penalties to some of your ability scores. Yeah. Um, and, and all that, uh, it seems very, very logical. Um, I think mm -hmm. this also delves into a, a deeper mechanical question of how granular you want your game to go because yeah. in a game with hit points like like dragon age or dungeons and dragons or what have you you uh damage is so abstracted that uh assessing this sort of penalty can be arbitrary at times you know oh yeah. you took 
three quarters your hit points in one blow well your legs are shattered or something like that and right there may not be that rule for that but it definitely makes sense if you lost three quarters of your health in one go it it, it stands to reason that 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 might be a severe injury so that would make a lot of sense um but I know within within my own design context, uh, injuries and and actually the the mental side, psychoses uh, played a big factor in Cold Steel Wardens. Gotcha. So marrying that into into Dragon Age, um, though we see obviously in the um, in the video games that's something that seems to have been phased out as yeah. uh, two and by the three time Inquisition came around, we weren't really doing that anymore. Yeah. So. But uh, the first two games did have injuries. Uh, Origins got into it a bit more, was a bit more specific about it, and uh, Dragon Age Two got it, got more abstract with it. Um, Dragon Age Origins had like very like every time your character went unconscious and was brought back, they came back with an injury. Yeah. Um, then you had like to heal them separately on top of that, right. which was have to carry an injury kits <laughs> or uh, yeah, or have a spirit or have a sufficiently powerful enough spirit mage. Uh, or a spirit healer to uh, fix it up. It's good to carry Win in the party. <laughs> yes, it is. It's always good to have Win around. So it's uh, so. Um, but then Dragon Age Two, whenever a character fell unconscious and came back during the same fights, uh, well, at any time really, uh, when they didn't have any bed rests, they would come back with a uh, a penalty to their maximum hit points in the form uh, as a as a form of injury. And that may be a very easy way to articulate that uh, at the tabletop as well. Maybe say yeah. a tenth, or you know, in a in a really severe case, maybe even a quarter max hit points until mm -hmm. that injury can be fully treated. Definitely. So, so that might be a route to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, of course, there is another route uh, that has been made already, and it sounds like uh, this is probably not the only one, uh, but the Esoterica from Thetis, uh, which is something we featured uh, way back when, uh, back, back when we started doing this podcast, because that's, that's, been, that's been around for years now, but um, they actually had house rules written for, uh, for uh, injuries, and actually had like little card printouts, so you could actually hand PCs cards of their injuries so that they, could, so they wouldn't forget. Oh, that would be neat. Yeah, um, we do recommend, uh, and of course, uh, taking a look at the Esoterica from Thetis uh, a little closely because um, they do um, end up making Dragon Age uh, a lot thicker rule-wise. Mm. Um, so, uh, and I think they've got like various. They actually wrote their own spells that can be used for uh, fixing injuries, and a lot of the spells that are used in Esoterica of Thetis have some modifications so that it works with their rule set. So it's be a good idea to just take a look around and make sure that there's no weird names popping up in the injuries set but i don't think there is yeah and, and it, in the end it comes down to whatever you as the gm really want in terms of your rule set if you if you want yeah. to move faster if you want to abstract things it it might be easier just to let injuries go or to use maybe that uh, dragon age 2 just like penalty to hit points but if yeah. if you're finding your group really revels in the crunch maybe maybe look into something that's a little more granular mm -hmm. um i remember actually when i played uh, star wars saga edition still one of my favorite d20 systems they had a thing called the wound threshold uh, which yes. was still very abstract um but it was an excellent way to show that, you know, the PC just took a really heavy hit, so they're not really feeling so hot right now. Mm 
I, I played in a uh, fairly long uh, Star Wars D20 game back when I gotcha. was in undergrad, so mm. that, that came in handy. Well, nice. I can't say handy. I was playing this uh, weak little uh, tech specialist who had a very low wound threshold, so combat gotcha, was not yeah. my thing. But, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that mechanic's um, uh, pretty, I don't want to say bog standard, but it's, a, it's, it's shown its head in a lot of role-playing games, notably Call yes. of Cthulhu and... Um, Shoot, I just lost the other one I was thinking of, but uh, I've actually worked in a similar mechanic into the next game I'm writing. Uh, it's, a, nice. it's, a, it's a horror game, so it, it, it very much makes sense that you know any attack could really take you out. Definitely, yeah. It's a good move. So, uh, thank you, Andy, for the, for the excellent question. <laughs> You're welcome, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one last suggestion I wanted to throw in, especially for that one, is that... Um, uh, the regeneration spell. There's been a couple folks on the boards wondering what we could do with it, but regeneration probably worked would work really well for healing injuries. Yeah, definitely. That would that makes total thematic sense. Yeah, and it even says it yeah, gives a buff to fixes. that weaker spell. Definitely, because it's right now it's like uh, I think it's like an hour cast. Um, yeah, it's it's a really nasty cast time, but it does like three d six plus magic and healing. It's a pretty solid heal, but it does take some time to cast, so it's not really something you can do in uh, combat. And uh, but uh, other than that, it's very vague on what it does because it says that it heal like it says that it can like knit bones and heal organ damage, which sounds perfect for an injury system. <laughs> um, it can't uh, cure diseases or neutralize poisons, but it can counteract some symptoms and repair uh, damage suffered from long-lasting poisons. So it can also be used for like. Uh, keeping yourself up if a poison's uh, lasting for a long time. But, yeah, it's, it even says, cured of many major injuries, such as broken bones or damaged organs. That, so, would, that would do it. Go for it. And it requires you to be a master of creation magic, so if you're going to work that dang, or work that hard, you should get something nice for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, thank you everybody for the questions. If you have a question about the Dragon Age RPG, whether uh, it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, or anything else, send a message to podcast at gmail.com, or you can send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Caught the Protector on the Green Running forums. That's me. Woot. Huzzah. Um... Well, we've got lots to talk about. We're actually going to be skipping the Dissonant Verses this week because uh, we got nothing to show right now. Um, maybe we'll get something later. Uh, but there's plenty to talk about in the main topic, so we're going to jump over the Dissonant Verses. Uh, and with just a friendly reminder that, of course, you can find all of our res- all of the things that we've covered before in our resources for your game page on our blog, wondersofthetispodcast.wordpress.com, and... And all those avenues of communication I just mentioned a second ago, you can also send any custom creations that you found or have your, uh, of your own to us, and we will feature them. So, we should probably, uh, let's see, we need to uh, gird our soldiers and... Uh, Indeed, it is time to draw swords. It is a oh, great yes. day. <laughs> because uh, we're stepping up to, uh, let's see, stepping to the mountaintop to look down upon the soldiers... Uh, Mass combat is our main topic for today. Is it fate or chance? I can never decide. (laughs) 
So today we're talking about mass combat. You can turn to pages 225 and to 232 in the core rulebook and you can follow along with us or read the rules for yourself. So, as, as is often the case in Dragon Age lore, sometimes large organizations, nations, or blights will menace the hero's home and they must be dealt with. When armies clash, you will need some special rules to determine the outcome. Uh, this is a common occurrence not only in Thetis' history, but in the Dragon Age games. Every game has an instance of mass combat or two in it, uh, so we would hope, uh, we should hope that the PCs can step into the battlefield at least once in longer campaigns. Definitely, and the more the the more epic in scope your game gets, uh, the bigger those battles become. Uh, both uh, both it seems in the video games and in uh, and at the role playing table. Definitely. Um, and thankfully, Dragon Age RPG, Dragon Age's RPG has a very clever rule set that makes mass combat simple and quick and helps emphasize the PC's own heroics as opposed to the uh, various troop movements. This is uh, not... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're fine. All right. Uh, this is not a tactical war game where you control units and their precise placement on the battlefield and uh, try to get the upper hand based on uh, good movements and placement in the battlefield and uh, high ground and low ground. Um but it is a quick and dirty way to get the encounter moving and back to the PCs and how they influence the conflict. Because the adventure is about, let's say, the story is about the, the heroes, and uh, we want to get back to them. It definitely so. takes a much more narrative focus, but for uh, so for the the genre that we're that Dragon Age falls in, that makes a lot more sense than breaking out the tape measures and uh, going <laughs> into one inch hexes. Right. Right. Um, it does. Ha it is simple, uh, but it does contain additional rules that can be used for folks who want more detail. Uh, we'll touch on those later. But uh, mass combats, uh, we'll talk a little about how they run, when you should use them, and uh, we'll run an example for you. So, um, Andy, how much have you used uh, mass combat in your campaigns? Well, uh, I mentioned uh, at the at the top of the podcast that uh, mm -hmm. this came in uh, came in in a little bit as I concluded uh, the the recent Dragon Age campaign that I that I was running, uh, scenic mm -hmm. gunsmith. Um, the the kind of final encounter with uh, with the inhabitants of Dunsmith ended with something of a siege where uh, the heroes uh, and uh, some of the villagers that they managed to save uh, were holed up in this old uh, military fort awaiting a horde of hideous spiderling creatures and uh, and the like that were about to descend upon them so Ooh, man. so our, our final combat encounter was in fact uh, was in fact a, a mass combat nice uh, so that was that was pretty exciting uh, with a uh, <laughs> a slightly reskinned Vartaral in the uh, in the uh, in the rear and many 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 spiders uh, Ooh, getting squished, but gotcha. luckily wow. our, uh, the agents of the Inquisition managed to carry the day and return back to Skyhold alive. Excellent. Well, good. And that sounds horrifying. <laughs> that that was kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a couple of uh, fade rifts must have opened and uh, some. Demons must have come out. Yeah. Uh, the the scenic Dunsmith uh, scenario I, I mentioned mm -hmm. it on the the previous podcast I was on yeah. um, is from the the Lamentations of the Flame Princess role playing game. That's it's an right. old school uh, like um, 
uh, retro clone. But nice. you know, when I first read the scenario, my my thoughts went immediately to the Fallowmire section of of Dragon Age Inquisition. Oh, definitely. Where you're wandering yeah. through this demon haunted swamp, and something terrible <laughs> has happened, but you're not exactly sure what, and unless you read all those codex entries. <laughs> but um, did you did you write codex entries? Uh, for for that campaign, yes, I did actually. Nice. Um, they found uh, the as it turned out uh, within the within the context of scenic Dunsmith, there are two major plot points. One is the spider cult that has infested this town, and nice. the second revolves around a time cube, which uh, there's lots of temporal shenanigans going on, and I I mentioned that in the in the previous podcast. A yeah. Bit. But in, in attempting to find that time cube, they uh, our heroes found themselves in this ancient elven tomb um, gotcha. where Sathuria the Kinslayer was laid to rest. And uh, as it turned out, he was the, the father of the Vartarals, like he was the original creator of those. Uh, back in the days of Arlathon. Nice. So, um, as it turned out, you know, they found out that he was not all that was cracked up to be, and I put together kind of a his, uh, a set of codex entries, a set of uh, journals detailing his history, that as they nice. were exploring this tomb, they managed to find out. Very cool. So, and, uh, of course, it all culminated in... Uh, in a giant mass- siege. Siege and spider siege. <laughs> Ooh, man. Well, um... We'll talk a little bit of how that uh, combat might have worked, uh, and how a couple of uh, other large engagements in the Dragon Age video games and even the books might have worked. So, um, mass combat uh, is essentially uh, three phases uh, of the combat. Uh, they are the opening moves, the main engagement, and the finishing moves. Uh, during these three phases, the two or more armies uh, roll separate advanced tests to see who wins each phase. Uh, the, far- the army that reaches their success threshold first wins that phase. Uh, the army that wins two out of the three phases wins the entire battle. That's the, that's the, the, the top-down view. And, uh, the, the goal is to win at least two out of the three phases. You can win all three, uh, it's, but, and that can be very useful to determining just how well you, be- how well you beat your foes. At a certain point, it, it may it may also behoove a GM to literally call the fight at a certain point because if one force very decisively wins the opening moves and then decisively again wins the main engagement, uh, the battle by that point becomes a rout. <laughs> so, right, right. It may it may end up becoming uh, just how much the PCs can save or just how much do the PCs run these folks into the ground. Yeah. But. Yeah, sometimes you might have to call it by that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, now during, of course, these phases, uh, while people, while all of the te- all of the armies are making advanced tests, uh, when one or the more of the sides of the battle are within five points of the success threshold, the GM calls for what is a, called a crisis point. Crisis points are encounters, usually combats, uh, that the PCs and their allies can take part in to push the battle tor- uh, towards the favor of their side. This can be something like uh, taking a choke point in a steep mountain pass, uh, taking an entire fort camp from the enemy, eliminating as many of the enemy forces as the PCs can. Uh, something that can turn the tide enough to give that army, uh, to give their army that last push. Something Whoever wins like, the cr- uh, yeah. lighting a beacon at Ostagar or... Uh, yeah, you know, something like that. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so whoever wins the crisis point uh, gains a further five points of success for their army. Uh, if the winning side of the crisis point doesn't reach the success threshold, the phase continues, and the GM may call for another crisis point, um, if, uh, especially if, if the PCs need to keep pushing so that they can win that phase. Uh, or let's see, they might fight. They can fight desperately to stave off defeat, or uh, try and catch up, or or uh, maybe the enemy is going to take one last stab at the PCs. Mm. Who knows? So, um, all three of these phases uh, themselves are actually kind of unique. Uh, the opening moves is kind of the scout scouting and intelligence gathering phase. It's when the first initial skirmishes begin happening. Um, the major bulk of the forces aren't necessarily together, but folks are trying to get the jump on their enemies already. Um, because good planning is key, um, the test that you roll for the advance, the, com the test that the commander of the armies roll, um, is cunning military lore. And then, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, things, uh trying to replicate them this within the game this uh things like cutting off supply lines things like you know s scouting enemy encampments things like anything mm. involving ambush tactics before uh before the big climactic beachhead uh, really falls mm -hmm. within that opening moves idea yeah. it could even be like getting a map of the area for the commanders to look at and mm -hmm. start putting daggers into <laughs> into people <laughs> what needs daggers in them exactly <laughs> Um, and then, of course, uh, after the opening moves is the main engagement. This is when swords meet shields and just becomes the slugfest. Tactics fall by the wayside. The armies simply clash in a chaos of carnage. Um, morale and discipline, however, become very paramount to keeping the fighters moving. Um, the commanders of these armies during the main engagement all roll communication leadership to keep their soldiers' heads in the fight. I love the fact that uh, for all three of these phases, in fact, that role uh, that role can change uh, mm -hmm. based on based on what's important at the time. It's true. Because as the we move GM, into finishing uh, moves, you get a little more move, options. You yeah, we get some more because uh, finishing moves becomes the surprise tactics, the sudden charges, or the big changes in the fight that take place. Um, like maybe there was supposed to be some charge led by Loghain at the Battle of Ostagar. Where to go? Huh. I wonder where all the bulk of the Ferelden forces could be. <laughs> Uh-oh. Nuts. Uh, <laughs> the winner of the main engagement uh, gets to select whether this phase requires communication leadership or cunning military lore, so they can either play to their strengths or try and exploit the weaknesses of their foes. Because the battle is kind of going in their direction, and uh, so they get to kind of decide the tempo. And that, and if you're if you're in the camp that wins the opening moves but finds yourself on the losing end of the main engagement, you're definitely a little bit at a disadvantage, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. at the end battle. Definitely. So um, those are the basics, and uh, we've said a couple of terms that don't necessarily probably don't necessarily make sense just yet, uh, but we'll get to them right here because uh, there are a couple things you're going to want to know before running a mass combat. Mass combats are. Uh, not necessarily more complicated than regular combat encounters, but you're going to want to know some things before you go in. You can't really do them. They're very difficult to pick up on, to just do on the fly. Um, so you're going to need some stat blocks, because those armies are going to need some numbers. And, and the, uh, the core book is, is nice enough that it delineates, you know, a typical standard, uh, what, a, what an army might look like uh, within the mass combat chapter. So uh, if you're mm -hmm. looking for 
how to how to build those and you're the sort of person like me that works off of examples or uh, yeah. or the like that's a great resource to to look and it's right in the core book mm -hmm. they use the battle of ostagar as an example and uh stat out the royal army of ferelden and the uh, then of course the darkspawn horde so that's uh, so those, you can use that of course as an example. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, at the end of the book they should have a printable page that contains a uh, mass battle uh, army card that you can print out and actually write onto. Yeah, and one of the adventures at the end of the core book as well is centers on a mass battle, which, oh, uh, yes. which includes there, which includes those forces as well. So you we, so uh, you get to see a little bit of a smaller case uh, in addition to the Battle of Ostagar. Definitely. Uh, we actually uh, ran that adventure as part of one of my part of my home campaign, um, and it's it's pretty fun. It's really cool. They uh, they give you a lot of uh, chances to build up before doing that mass combat, uh, so that you have a lot of uh, units and a lot of strength going into it. And it's a good idea because uh, the blights <laughs> practically come into edge hall. So. Um, the things you're going to need to know about each army, uh, every army that's taking part, usually probably only two, but, you know, in some cases there may be more than one army that's gracing the battlefield. Uh, you're going to want their names. What's the army called? Uh, you're going to need to know the commanders for each army. Uh, you're going to want and uh, you're going to, want to know those commanders' uh, communication leadership bonuses and their cunning military lore bonuses because those will be used uh, during the uh, main engagement and opening moves, respectively. Uh, and potentially during that finishing moves phase. You're going to want to know uh, the number of troops that are in each army, uh, because when you add them together, they're going to give you the difficulty of the advanced test of each phase. Uh, they're going to tell you just how big the fight is. Um, you're going to want to know the primary troop type, uh, which is going to be the rank-and-file soldiers of each army. So for a blight, it would probably be something like uh, uh, Genlocks or Herlocks. And then, uh, goodness... And then for um, Ferelden, I think it was mostly uh, men-at-arms. Yeah, Ferelden infantry, I believe, or something along yes. those lines. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, the, of course, that's going to be the um, the person that is the, the most, uh, what most of the army comprises of. Not necessarily the whole thing, because uh, you're also going to need to know what uh, specialists are taking part in each army. Um, and each army is going to have specialists that work in one of the three phases. Um, stages, uh, so you're going to have specialists for, sta uh, hopefully have specialists for stages 1, 2, and 3. Some armies won't have specialists for those stages. Um, but they will give bonuses to the, uh, army, uh, give bonuses to the army during those particular phases. And specialists can really vary depending on what type of for forces you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, elven assassins, or, you know, siege engineers, or, you know, someone like, uh, something like the Bulls Chargers might be, those might Ooh, all be yeah. different specialists operating in different phases of the battle. Definitely. Or, um, you know, if you've, uh, perhaps recruited the mages, or recruited the, da uh, recruited, recruited the werewolves because you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, those could definitely work as specialists during some kind of mass combat um, may not necessarily be everything that you've got but you know during sta uh, stage one you're probably going to want some scouts and some folks who can uh, sneak on ahead and um, who can who are very good at sneaking on ahead and gathering information so uh, you're going to so if you've got uh, scouts or skirmishers or folks who are uh, who are um, lightly armored or and uh good at subterfuge they're probably going to be specialists in stage one 
Um, stage two is the big slugfest, so you're going to want folks who uh, can take a lot of hits and deal a lot back, so it's going to be things like Templars and Grey Wardens. Or even mages who can, you know, blow everybody yeah. up. Yeah, when everyone's clustered down there in formation, they make a nice, you know, nice target for a large-sized fireball or tempest spell. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, uh, stage three is usually going to be something like um, mobile troops or hard-hitting cavalry or maybe even flying creatures for all we know. Griffins. That griffins. don't exist anymore. Yes. <laughs> if we were in the right campaign, it could be griffins. <laughs> So, um, you're going to want to keep those in mind as well, because they will give bonuses. Um, and it's also worth noting that if you're using the organization rules that we talked about uh, a little while ago, um, armies that come from organizations uh, can actually have a little bit easier time getting statted out. Because you might already know the people who run the organization, who would probably be uh, the commanders. Um, and uh, the organization's stats can actually help you drum up stats for an army. Uh, page 143 uh, the Court of Rulebook has a sidebar called Organizations and Mass Battles. Uh, it has some suggestions for how many troops an organization might have at, at its disposal uh, if they make any special, and if they uh, have any specialty troops available for the three phases of the battle. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like the might specialty troop specialization. If you've got magic mages, those work as specialty troops. Yeah, and... and Presumably, if you're using those organizational rules, um, the organizations that are going to war, uh, your your players have invested fairly hev heavily in, so they they'll probably know it's not you know the um, it's not the generic commander number 147. It's going to be you know Robertson, the uh, the Ferelden skirmisher, who who'll be leading the opening charge. Oh yeah. So, um, you're, so you can use all the, you'll use all these things to stat out the armies. And then, of course, once you have the stats of both armies, you need to determine the size of the battle. And uh, to do this, you just combine the, uh, the troop numbers from both sides. And uh, that total number is going to determine the success threshold of each phase, uh, with larger numbers of soldiers uh, creating larger success thresholds to reach before, a battle, uh, before one of the phases is won. So... Um, an easy battle is a, you know, a skirmish would be like fifty to two hundred and fifty total combatants, and the success threshold for that test is only for that advanced test is only five. Um, but a large battle like a thousand and one to uh, a thousand to five thousand total combatants would be a success threshold of fifteen, um, all the way up to an epic battle of twenty thousand plus combatants being a success threshold of twenty five. I don't. I don't know that we've uh, we've seen that so far in terms of in terms of Dragon Age canon. Yeah. Uh, even um, even Ostagar or or the the battle that ended the Fifth Blight. That that's a big twenty thousand per side. That is a big battle. It's big. It's big. Um, that actually probably would work best for like uh, military campaigns, like um, the Navarra uh, Orle Wars, or maybe even uh, a couple of exalted marches against the Kunari during the Steel Age. Um, that would probably be better for, um, uh, epic battles are probably gonna be better for, like, longer-term military campaigns, where PCs are, you know, helping push the Kunari out of Thetis in the Steel Age or something. Yeah, that, it would definitely be a, a campaign-shaking, um, uh, engagement there, and probably oh, yeah. something that would be at the culmination of a, of a long, high-level campaign. Mm hmm or maybe even several smaller mass combats. Mm-hmm. 
Um, let's see. And then, uh, you're also probably going to want to know, as a GM, how long the battle is going to take in real time. Uh, ideally, mass combats, uh, should only take about a session to finish, um, but can vary between campaigns. Um, some GMs may want their campaign to just be, because if you're just doing an entire war, like a historical campaign about, uh, maybe about the, about the first blight, um, the whole campaign could actually be, uh, backdropped by a huge mass combat, um, of the Blight versus Thetis. And it, on that level, the PC's action, uh, the PC's direct actions could then be, oh, well, you guys succeeded in taking this objective, but you missed this other one, so, uh, we're gonna give a bonus on, uh, on this test, but later on down the line, this may come back to haunt you. Yes, definitely. Um... So, and of course, uh, some, especially if you're doing like a skirmish, but just like maybe 70 combatants, um, that's probably going to be done really quick. And uh, some campaigns may do multiples of those, uh, especially if you're doing like a really big military campaign and you have to have the PCs like uh, pick objectives that they want to go take and um, use the mass combat rules to determine how, how well the battle goes. And in fact, for uh, for the uh, the combat that I ran to end scenic Dunsmith, that w it, it was a skirmish level uh, combat. Gotcha. There were about a hundred to one hundred twenty five spider thing people mm -hmm. um, against uh, our heroes. We had a we had a table of uh, seven players uh, plus myself running, and uh, they had saved approximately about uh, fifteen uh, people from one of the noble families there who were gotcha. not infected. So. Huh. All right. Yeah. So, um, you that's the uh, skirmishes are probably going to be resolved pretty quickly. Uh, could potentially even be resolved with a single die roll, or at least their their um their phases could be resolved with a single die roll. Uh, but let's see. So keeping those in mind, and um, if you are going to have a combat, um, go over into multiple sessions. Um, just try and uh, make a note somewhere about the progress that each army is making towards the uh, success thresholds. So it's. It can be a little bit of a pain, so it's it's a good idea to try and do it all in one, especially if you're going to have like have bigger battles, um, but not impossible to not not impossible to take care of. No, um, um, and it, uh, truth truth be told, it'd probably be difficult to uh, to carry over all those numbers into into another session. So if you can get it done in the big gulp, do it. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're doing like uh, if you're using a lot of the little subset rules. Uh, mm -hmm. which we will mention here, the special sauces that you can add. Um, because these rules are not meant to be a perfect simulation of the carnage of mass combat, but some people may appreciate uh, more detail for exactly how the combats are resolved. Uh, to this end, there, uh, starting on page 231, you can find rules for working out the number of casualties on each side. Um, you can uh, and see so you can uh, you have uh, extra rules for troop deployment. So say a uh, uh, a commander has maybe like 5,000 troops that they have to spread out between each phase. So they can send like a thousand, they send like a thousand during the first engage, during the initial engagement, uh, during the opening moves, and then during the main engagement, maybe they call those thousand back and send out the next 3,000 of fresh fighters for the, uh, the big slugfest. And then they have 2,000, they keep 2,000 for the, uh, for the finishing moves. Um, and of course you can also have, have them, uh, like, keep some of the troops in from the first from the other uh engagements from the other phases uh and have it bleed over it's um so it makes it a bit more tactical and that can adjust and especially if you want to uh 
Um, especially, especially if you're working on casualties because you can use it to try and minimize, uh, minimize the number of casualties, um, especially in resource-starved campaigns where every soldier is precious. Mm, yes. And that, that can be a great point of tension narratively because it's, it's, it's all well and good to have all these soldiers abstracted at the, at the mm-hmm. high level. But uh, when, when your heroes are down in the nitty-gritty seeing the, seeing the battle for themselves, those, uh, those lives mean a little more. Mm-hmm. And you have, when you, especially if one of the PCs is the commander and has to choose, you know, these 500 souls to go into the main engagement. Or these that are, or, <laughs> Right. So, uh, and of course, uh, they also have rules for sub-commanders. Uh, well, rules, more like rule. But um, you can actually have, you can have a commander um, appoint sub-commanders. You can have... Uh, Maybe the commander is only going to run the main engagements, um, but isn't necessarily very good at cutting military lore, so they have a sub-commander who, run, who uh, runs the opening moves so that they can use their bonuses um, and run the army themselves. Uh, but in the end, then they might have a, uh, a secondary commander who's... Um, may, a sub-commander who's maybe good at, uh, good at both, but not necessarily very good, so that they can um, adapt to the situation uh, for whatever the main engagement brings to the finishing moves. And that's a good way to, to delegate things uh, for all the players at the table, because if you, oh, have, yes. if you have one player who's very military and very tactically minded taking the role of that commander, it can easily become the, you know, the one-player spotlight show, as opposed Definitely. to involving the whole group. Uh, whereas if you have you know, your uh, Ferelden rogue sneaking around, acting as the opening moves, opening moves sub-commander, and your Orlesian Chevalier leading the charge in the main engagement, Oof. it spreads yeah. that uh, around the table a little more. Yeah, it definitely it gives the chance uh, for the PCs to shine outside of the crisis points as well. Especially if the PCs uh, like, and it's, they like to lead, so it's it's not a it's, it's so all of those can add some add a little extra to the combat. So you can take them or leave them. If you just need to know how the combat went, you probably don't have to go into uh, um, troop deployment, sub commanders, and casualties. But if the PCs are the ones leading and they want to know, you know, how many people got out, then you can crack out these rules. So, um, it's also good to know when you should use these rules, uh, because as the GM, you, are, uh, you would be perfectly within your rights to not use these rules at all. Um, well, let's see, personally, I recommend them, because I think they're kind of fun. Definitely. Um, it's a, it's a, a very streamlined system for this, and not a, lot mm-hmm. of, uh, not a lot of RPGs really do that well. It's true. Um, I've, I've done Pathfinder's Mass Combat, and um, it does require quite a few handouts. And, uh, and a degree in calculus, probably. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. They, they mercifully kept the numbers kind of low, but it uses mechanics that are very different from the rest of the game, so uh, people who are used to rolling after against an armor class will now have to learn a new rule set. Um, so it can be a little tricky, but uh, Dragon Age is very good for keeping this um, straightforward, so... Um, don't feel afraid to use them. Uh, it does require a little bit of preparation on the GM's part. So if you know that it's kind, if you can, if you know if the GM can see it coming or you want it to happen or you're expecting it, you can draw up the mass, uh, the army uh, stat blocks uh, ahead of time and uh, present them to the PCs when the uh, when the time comes. Um, but of course, if you don't want to, uh, but you still want to kind of have them here, you could. Um, 
You could, uh, you know, pretend that you're using the the, the rules and uh, just kind of start rolling stuff behind the uh, the GM screen and tell the PCs that, um, you know, that uh, our forces can't get through this choke point that the enemies have created. You need to give them a push. Um, and it's not so cheating the GMs... unless you're. The, uh, it's not cheating if you're the GM. <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. The GM never cheats. They enhance the experience. <laughs> So, um, you can, and of course, you, uh, you could just have, the, like, a number of encounters that take place that, whether or how well the PCs do on those encounters determines how well they clear that uh, particular mass combat. Um, and so, but uh, if your campaign is focusing on things like dungeon crawls or political intrigue, that doesn't necessarily mean breaking out of wars, you might not need these rules very much. Um, but... Campaigns that have huge consequences for actions that shake the fabric of Thetis may require these rules to be known and used well. Uh, Dragon Age Origins uh, used these a couple of times. Uh, once at the beginning for the Battle of Ostagar and once at the end for the Battle of Denerim. And then Inquisition's got these going all over the place. Oh, in spades. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mass Adam, combat's happening quite a few times in, yeah, in Adam Thetis. Adam Fortress, in... the Arbor Wilds, and probably mm -hmm. my favorite is actually the Impreste de Leon. Just, be, uh, just that idea of like pushing from camp yeah. to camp and yeah, making yeah. advances on the Red Templar army. Um, mm -hmm. It really hits home that idea that, hey... If we can take this, our forces will advance and entrench themselves, so that we yeah. can, uh, so that we can move forward in the campaign. You could even perhaps like um, represent that as being a whole bunch of smaller mass combats, just like a whole bunch of skirmishes. Mm -hmm. um, and you could even like, start getting to have the Inquisitor get into troop deployment, like how many folks are going to go take this and do this mass combat, and how many folks are going to go over here. And again, if you're if you're running that sort of high level campaign, especially if one of your uh, one of your PCs is the commander there, that that can get uh, really in depth. And you could even dispatch different groups to uh, say, okay, well, we're gonna send. Uh, we're going to start infiltrating this uh, Red Templar camp over here, but we're going to send, uh, but you're going to lead these forces uh, uh, along the riverbanks, you know, and try to try to uh, break up their supply lines. So uh, it, it, again, gives everyone at the table something to do, not just the guy who's invested into, into all the military style skills. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, um, it is, so for folks who do want to take part in it, uh, especially if you want to be a commander in mass combat, or if you're expecting mass combat, uh, and GMs, of course, if you're expecting mass combat, it would probably be good to tell the players that, uh, it's coming so that, uh, if some of them want to focus on it, um, can pick up those communication leadership and cunning military lore focuses because they are crucial. Yeah, definitely. That, that plus two goes a long way. Definitely. All right, so all these numbers and tests are great. Um, you know, it, it takes three phases with advanced tests, and uh, we drop a bunch of stats, but um, what does a mass battle actually end up looking like? Um, we're going to run a very quick and dirty example of using the system, uh, using the video games for inspiration so you can hear what mass combat might sound like. Um, we're going to be using the Kunari invasion of Kirkwall from Dragon Age 2's uh, Act 2 finale, um, as an example of mass combat. Um, it's a bit of a smaller one, not quite so much as uh, Inquisition, but we're trying to, see, the podcast at least is trying to stay away from Inquisition in terms of spoilers, but <laughs> Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age 2 are fair game by this point. So, um, how it might look. Uh, 
The players, uh, Hawk and company, uh, go to meet with the Arashok about elven fugitives taking asylum amongst the Kunari. The uh, Aveline, dema Aveline demands that they be released to the justice of Kirkwall City Guard, while the Arashok simply claims that they have made their choice, and so has he. He goes on that their actions were a symptom of the disease that is Kirkwall society. He's had enough of watching the boss destroy themselves and would now make them see. The GMs uh, has the PCs roll initiative against an ambush against them in which the PCs escape, but only to find the city being overrun by the Kunari. The GM informs their players that they are taking part in a mass battle, and they pull out the and uh, the GM pulls out the stats that they drew up ahead of time. The GM tells Aveline's player that because she is the head of the guard, she is the commander of Kirkwall's forces for at least the first phase. Okay. So, uh, it's looking like I'll be taking the role of Aveline here, and I have a communication leadership, leadership of plus five, and a cunning military lore of plus four. Uh, uh -huh. And it also <laughs> looks like I'm getting a plus, an extra plus one on test because this uh, Kirkwall is my home, so uh, that gives me a home turf advantage. Yes. Uh, I will be playing the part of the Arashok. Uh, the Arashok's bonuses are both a monstrous plus seven, uh, as he is the leader of the Kunari military and quite skilled at warfare. Um, let's see. Uh, the Kunari are also getting a plus one bonus on their tests because they have been planning this attack for months. Um, the GM also informs Aveline's player that the target number for the Kunari, because they are trained soldiers, is 13. The <sighs> number that she has, uh, that's the number that she has to roll to make progress on the advanced test. Uh, her guards are a target number eleven to overcome, as they are first, as they are caught off guard, so to speak. Uh, ambush and all that jazz. Yeah, uh, and finally, the GM decides that the combined number of troops mean that this mass battle is a challenging battle. Uh, about a thousand to five thousand combatants. Um, her guards are at a let's see, oh, and uh, each setting, which means that each phase's success threshold is fifteen. And we and we tally that by the results on the dragon die on a successful test. Correct. Uh, I, I believe we've covered advanced tests. We should have. It, I think it was a little while ago. Yeah, um, it was a it was a few uh, a few episodes ago. But yeah, just to, just yeah. to play along at home. Right. Um, if you do need a quick uh, um, what's it called a um, a refresher, I believe advanced tests. Uh, let's see. The explanation for advanced tests uh, can t is in um, goodness. Let's see. We have basic tests. Let's see. Uh, back. I believe it's in chapter one. Making opposed tests. No. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, I think we put it... In, I think they hit it in Chapter 8. The Art of Game Mastering. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. You'd think um, I know this book after doing all these dang podcasts. Yeah. It's close enough for government work. <laughs> there we go. Oh, found it. Page 213. Oh, there we are. Actually, not too far away from the mass combat rules. Excellent. There we go. So, you're right there with us already. So, uh, the two sides are going to open uh, with uh, open the combat with the opening moves phase. Uh, because of the surprise attack, the Arashok is going to gain a further plus one to test against Kirkwall forces. He also has specialists in the form of scouts who are in position before the PCs came to visit him, which gives him another plus one. And Aveline, having no time to prepare, has no specialists for this phase. Nuts. Isabella. <laughs> Isabella. You Ran know, off. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, uh, Aveline's total bonus uh, for this phase is plus 5, uh, and the Arashox is plus 10. Ouch. It is this not is a good hurt. place to start. Yes. So, uh, we are going to uh, yeah, we're gonna start rolling. We're going to roll together and start uh, tallying up the results, and uh, 
when one of us gets within five uh, of the success threshold, then we have Hawk and allies run a crisis point. Alrighty. So, let's go ahead and re first roll. Sounds good. Alright. The Aeroshock starts off a little uh, cold with a, uh, let's see, with a six, nine. Well, it starts off with a 19, but only a two on the dragon die. Ugh. I have, unfortunately, I, I just barely made it on the, um, made my target number with a 14 with a 1 on the dragon die. Alright. So, it starts out with a bit of a slugfest. Mm-hmm. Uh, second roll. Oh, much better. Very nice. Nine, let's see, uh, the, uh, let's see, the Aeroshock got another, uh, another 19, but with a 4 on the dragon die this time. I also got a 19 with a 6 on the dragon die. Nice. All right. So the Kirkwall guard starts to put up a, starts to starts yeah. to really catch up. So yeah. I'm at 6. Is surely <laughs> yelling something untoward towards them. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> I should be at 6 and I believe Abilene will be at 7 so yep. far. All right. Next roll. Oof. Not so good. I have a 17 with a 5 on the dragon die. Wow. The guys are hot. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Aeroshock is, uh, let's say, only rolled a seven. So he got a 17. He doesn't really have to roll very hard, uh, but he does get, he only gets a two on the dragon die, mm. um, which I believe means that uh, we enter a crisis point because yes. Aveline is only within three of the success threshold. Indeed. So the Kirkwall Guard are putting up a good fight. Uh, the crisis point is when uh, we um, then zoom down to Hawk uh, and uh, and see and who are being played by the player by the players um, who have to cut their way through an encounter or two of Kunari who stand between the PCs and leaving Lowtown to reach the higher districts. Uh, the PCs make work, short work of the Kunari soldiers, uh, but unfortunately, the GM informs them that the Kunari have spread through the city faster than the PCs can climb it. So the GM tells the players that they lose the crisis point. Nerds. Which gives the Aeroshock an extra five, uh, which actually only get, which actually gets him to a fourteen, uh, which is not quite enough for him to reach the success threshold. So uh, the GM decides that we are going to roll one more time. Alrighty. Oh, that's not what you want to see. Ooh, the Aeroshock got lucky. I have a thirteen with a one on the dragon oh, die, which means you hit thirteen. Uh, the Aeroshock got a 12, got a total of 21 with a 6 on the dragon die. Oof. The Kunari blast past, uh, and despite Hawk and the PC's best efforts, uh, Hightown, and Hightown is practically taken by this point. Uh, the PCs uh, head up into Hightown to find uh, the Kunari are dragging people away towards the top of the city. But uh, it means that the Kunari have won the opening, uh, the opening moves. <laughs> So, uh, then of course we begin the main engagement. Uh, the Guard, the Templars, and some Circle Mages uh, come out in force to fight for Kirkwall's future against the Kunari. Uh, the GM informs Abilene's player that the target number for her guards is now 13, now that they have had time to launch a counterattack. Uh, the Aeroshock's forces no longer gain a plus one bonus for surprise, uh, but he does have Stens and Sarabas as specialists, giving him a net plus one. Uh, Aveline's guards, however, are now being supplemented by Templars and Mages, and the GM informs Aveline that this means they now double the Kunari's numbers. Uh, the Guard Lieutenants, Templars, and Circle Mages act as specialists, uh, giving her a plus three bonus from the specialists, and a plus one bonus, uh, and actually giving the Aeroshock a minus one uh, on this test, because he is outnumbered two to one. 
So that would give me a net plus nine and you a plus ten. Correct. So, uh, the error. So, uh, we are going to, uh, of course, let's see, actually, you are absolutely right. Uh, let's see. Um, this time we are rolling uh, the character's uh, communication leadership, which, if I'm not mistaken, Abilene is a little better with. She never was the most cunning sort. <laughs> right, but once she gets into that fight with everybody, everybody's on their side. Mm-hmm. So, the main engagement begins, and we begin rolling dice. Alrighty. Oh, Oof. this is what weak, we like. Uh, weak opening for the era shock. <sighs> that is... <laughs> 13 and Six, 9 seven, is nine. 22, but even nice. better than that... I got a six on the dragon die and Oof. stunted. Ooh, man. The Templars and the mages come out, uh, and uh, the, the guard are back in force. The Kunari did not expect such pushback all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, the Arashok rolled uh, only an eight on the dice. Uh, so there are seven on the dice with a one on the dragon die, um, giving him a total of 17, so he succeeds, but barely pushes. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, the good guy. So uh, Kirkwall's forces are uh, let's see, are out in force now. <laughs> Quite. All right. Then right. we begin the next roll. Indeed. Right. Another solid one, but a bad Seven. dragon die for me. That is mm. twenty-one, but only nice. one on the dragon die. Gotcha. The Arashok, uh, Let's see. The Arashok marshals his forces for a counterattack. He got a five, nine, uh, nineteen total with a four on the dragon die. <laughs> Let's see, I believe that means that the Kirkwall forces are still ahead. Yeah. And the Kunari uh, only have a five towards the success. So, yeah. Right. Yep. So, next roll. Eh. Uh, the Arashok got a total of 17 with only a 2 on the dragon die, uh, bringing his total uh, and I have to. I uh, 19 with a 2 and uh, stunted as well. Gotcha. Um, we do point out that uh, we don't worry about stunts uh, during the rolls for the phases. Um, but during, actually, that's a good point to bring up, is that uh, during those crisis points... Those uh, would matter a lot more. <laughs> those would matter more, because uh, there is a special stunt that you can get uh, during a crisis point, uh, called We Are the Champions. <laughs> um, it is a six-point uh, six point stunt. It is very expensive, but uh, if you do manage to use it, and I imagine Hawk and company are probably going to use it more than once during this next crisis point, um, they actually you get to add uh, one to the advanced test total for that stage of the battle uh, to further guarantee your side's victory. And, uh, that can be very useful, especially if your group needs to start catching up to the foes. Mm-hmm. Or to push that crisis point a little earlier than your foe might want it to, to occur. Yes. So, uh, the Kunari right. are only at the Kunari are only at seven right now. And I'm sitting at nine, so Very good. The battle keep continues. Alright. Oh. That's not good. Ugh. I got fourteen with a one on the dragon die. Oof. Uh, the Arashok rolled uh, 10 on the dice. Uh, his plus 10 makes it a 20 with a 4 on the dragon die. Oof, the battle seems to be turning. It does. The Kunari are not so easily pushed back. Let's see. Goodness, that means that I uh, that the Kunari are at... 4, 7, 9... We're at 13 now. And I'm at a measly uh, 10. Which means that we now go to a crisis point. Um... 
The PCs find themselves surrounded by Saravas, uh, but Knight Commander Meredith steps in to give the PCs an extra edge. Uh, they fight hard through Hightown uh, and eventually reach the gate and reach the uh, the entrance to the Viscount's Keep, um, which means uh, let's see, and they win the Crisis Point, uh, and in time to learn that the Kunari are taking hostages, which gives them exactly five, uh, which makes them hit exactly fifteen, which means that Kuna that the uh, the Kirkwall forces uh, win the main engagement. Which means that the battle is kind of anybody's game at this point. Both sides have won a phase. Mm-hmm. So, which means that we move to the finishing moves. Uh, the Kunari are in control of the Viscount's Keep uh, with important hostages in place. Um, because this is a small uh, skirmish, in, say, a smaller uh, infiltration into the Viscount's Keep, um, they see the Arashok has no specialists, uh, but Aveline does get to keep her uh, Templars and Mages, who are making a big distraction so that Hawk and company can get inside. Uh, which means that she's got a plus two for her specialists uh, and a plus one for the home turf. Uh, and the Arashok uh, only gets his plus one for advanced planning. So, uh, the Arashok is actually at a plus eight. Uh, and Aveline uh, gets to decide whether or not uh, she gets to use communication leadership or cunning military lore because she won the main engagement. And in fact, Aveline should probably use her communication leadership because, again, uh, cunning is not her strong suit. <laughs> right. So she's got a plus five to communication leadership, giving her a bonus of plus eight. So we are evenly matched in the Viscount's chambers. Indeed. So, we begin rolling for the finishing moves. Whoa! Ooh, man. Well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> the Aeroshock is not having it today. <laughs> I am at a 19 with a measly 1 on the dragon die. Uh, the Aeroshock got a... Uh, I got a 22 with a 5 on the dragon die. Oof. Oof. Wow, that All advantageous right. positioning <laughs> right there. The Kunari are entrenched. It's a siege. Okay. That's a little better. Eight. That is 18 with a 5 on the dragon die. Okay, nice. Uh, the Arashok, however, got a 19 with a 4 on the dragon die. So it is 9 to 6 favor you. Yes, it's rough. The Canary are, are hard to move. Ew. Oh, that's what we want. Alright. <laughs> that is 21 with a 6. Nice. Let's see. Uh, the Arashok got an 11, 19, with only a 3 on the dragon die. Okay. Which brings uh, the Arashok to... Uh, I believe see, it's 12 nine, to 12. 12. 12 to 12. All right. Uh, which means we go to... We are both within 5 of the success threshold, which means we go to the crisis point. Mm -hmm. The PCs reach the Arashok in the keep, uh, and Hawk challenges them to single combat with everything riding on this. Uh, of course, with your choices in the game, it could be a little different. Maybe, uh, maybe it actually goes peacefully, and they win the uh, they win it by giving Isabella uh, back. Yeah, who came, who thought to come back with the Tome of Coslin, and then he hand her off to the Kunari. I, I don't know that anyone has ever done that in the history of playing Dragon Age Two, but you know, <laughs> right? It could. Happen. I hadn't even I hadn't even considered it an option until I saw it in the Dragon Age Keep, and I was like, who would do that? <laughs> She thought to come back and give you the Tome of Kosslyn. She was halfway to Ostwick before she thought better, and then you still handed her handed her over to them. Man, what a jerk. 
So, um, however it is resolved, uh, through either of those methods, I suppose, but probably, preferably, defeating the Aeroshock in single combat. Um, that means that Hawk and company uh, push for that final plus 5, giving them to a 17, which means that they hit the success threshold of 15, which means that they win the Kunari invasion. They defeat the Kunari in their invasion. Woohoo! The is their... saved-ish? <laughs> saved for now, for at least a couple years. <laughs> Hawk is uh, Hawk is named the champion, uh, and uh, and uh, Knight Commander Meredith doesn't seem too happy that she had to name them champion. Who knows where uh, that'll go? I, I don't know what would ever make that woman happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if she knows what happy is. <laughs> Probably not. Poor gal. Anyway, uh, that means that Hawk uh, and their company have won the mass combat, uh, and then of course the GM would have them start moving into Act Three. Where nothing so, could possibly go wrong. Nothing. <laughs> nothing will go wrong, and nothing forebodes for future games. <laughs> so, uh, that's all we've got. That's all we've got to show. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, we hope that you feel like throwing in some mass combat into your campaigns. It's, it can It's a lot of fun. Uh, having the roll, having the roll-offs, and uh, see who gets there, and giving the PCs that last chance to push, uh, to push hard and bring the win to them. Yeah, that, that, those crisis points definitely can uh, make it a lot more personal than the than the abstract top-down view. So definitely, uh, it's a nice blend right there. Very good. So um, I believe that's all we've got to share. Uh, Andy, thank you again for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Always great to, to talk some Dragon Age. I was going to mention, um, and yes. if you want to put this up in the show notes, I, I did do a full campaign log of uh, the Scenic Dunsmith adventure. So if, you, right. if you're interested in reading through that, I have that up on RPG.net, and I okay. can give you guys the, uh, the link for that if you so choose. Yeah, if you want to send me the link, I'll put it on our blog, and folks can check it out anytime they want. Awesome. It, it's definitely an exciting little uh, little soiree in in the Fallowmire cool. there. <laughs> yeah, going to the Fallowmire, you know, that's a, that's always fun. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, the, the Wonders of Thetis podcast. It's always a blast. Uh, this is Ren wishing lots of sixes on that dragon die. And this is Andy keeping the dread wolf off your trail. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, have a good whatever comes next. Bye-bye.